Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Leaving a toxic or abusive environment is a very difficult thing, and navigating those uncharted waters for the first time can feel extremely lonely. But the truth is, there are people out there who have made it to the other side, and I think it's important to hear the stories of those who have been there and done that, because they can articulate and understand in a way that nobody else can. I hope today's episode is helpful to anybody who's at any stage in that journey. Whether you're questioning if you can get out, whether you're somebody who just exited and you're looking for answers, or whether you're an advocate or a survivor yourself turning back to help another generation of survivors make their way to freedom, this episode has something for you. At the beginning of the show, I'm going to be sharing snippets from three conversations I've had with guests on the Preacher Boys podcast. The first is my good friend, Claudia King. Claudia is a former police officer who was a victim of domestic violence herself. She was an unlikely victim, and while there were warning flags everywhere, the people around her just didn't see the things that were really happening behind closed doors. Next, I'm going to be sharing a snippet from my conversation with Sarah Edmondson. Sarah and her husband, Nippy, have become good friends of mine as well, and I've collaborated with them on a couple different projects at this point. And Sarah shares in this clip why she decided not just to leave Nexium, but to really blow it up and raise a ton of awareness about the things that Nexium was doing. And lastly, you'll be hearing from Emily Elizabeth Anderson. Now, Emily's been on the Preacher Boys podcast twice now, but more than likely you recognize her from Amazon Prime's hit documentary series, Shiny Happy People, which exposes IBLP and all of the craziness surrounding that. In this clip, Emily's going to talk about when she realized that not only was the guy running IBLP a bad dude, but IBLP's teaching itself was pretty intrinsically harmful. I hope these clips are valuable to you and stay tuned because I have a brand new interview that's coming up right after these clips get done with my friend, Ashley Easter, the founder of Courage 365, who has an incredible free resource that's guaranteed to be a big help to you. The first clip is Claudia King on why others ignore the signs of abuse. 
I was in our 80th police basic introductory course in Greensboro and became an officer. And it truly was one of the most amazing jobs I've ever had in my life. Uh, It taught me so much about myself. It taught me how to be a leader. It taught me how to confidently make decisions. And it also taught me that anyone can be a victim. As you said, Uh, I was in this relationship with actually another police officer. And I remember going from call to call to call. Um, We had quite a lot of domestic calls where I was an officer and I would get really upset with these individuals. And typically they were women. So I'll probably say she or her a fair amount, but I would get really genuinely upset with these people and say, not to them, but, you know, to myself or later, what is wrong with them? Why don't they care more about themselves? Why are they doing this to themselves? And I even would joke, and this is really embarrassing to say now, but I would joke that victims of domestic abuse who were repeated victims should be charged with aiding and abetting because they were Mm. aiding and abetting the abuse by not leaving. And I really thought that, you know, I truly believed that. And The most interesting part of that is at night when I would go home and take off my uniform, I was living in an abusive relationship with everything from physical abuse, emotional abuse, financial control, isolation, you name it. I was living it during that time. Did you recognize what you were experiencing as abuse or was it something where you were deflecting all of that onto the people you're dealing with day to day? Like, Or was it something where you did understand it? And there was this kind of shame that you were feeling where you felt like, okay, I know I'm going through this, but the way that I'm going to cope with it is by focusing on on other people's situations. I think as time went by, it was all of those things. I think initially I just thought he sucked, you know, as a boyfriend and just wasn't that great. But at the same time, I didn't really deserve any better. So I'm just going to deal with it. It's fine. You know, he's really not that bad. These are all the things I would tell myself. So I think I was really deflecting it a lot onto the other victims that I was dealing with because I wasn't ready to accept it myself. And then when I finally did accept it, and, and that took a long time. I mean, we were together I think two, three years and we lived together. Um, but once I decided like, yeah, this is, this is not okay. This is something that I should not be involved in. Then I was able to really see him for what he really was and start to see all the different actions as abuse. We're speaking to your perspective as somebody who experienced abuse within, uh, I mean, within a position where, I mean, of all people, police officer, well put together educated, like strong, tough, you know, in, in dealing with these cases. But I, I do want to also turn this because one of the things we talk about are p- power dynamics uh, mm-hmm. within churches usually, but within abusive relationships, there's power dynamics. And I'm always interested by people who are able to get into positions of power, whether it be a police officer, or pastor, you know, different positions like this. Um, when you look back at this relationship do you ever wonder why no one else saw red flags, like people who were in law enforcement, who were working with this person day in, day out, who were seeing his personality and his tone? Like, 
you know, and, and obviously there's a big conversation nationally about police officers and, you know, aggression and all these different, you know, what should we be able to spot? Was he a chameleon or was it something where like someone should have seen this and stepped in and tried to assist? That's a fantastic question. And I think there were those red flags. Obviously, there were those amongst my family and friends who saw him, you know, more often that I ignored. But yeah, there were actually other officers and command staff who saw some things that probably should have alerted them to more. Um, Mm. He actually ended up losing his job. And I I don't know if he was fired or allowed to resign, but he lost his job there for falsifying reports. Mm. So there was a pattern of him lying. There was a pattern of him taking equipment when he shouldn't have. So maybe things that weren't directly related to abuse per se, but things that certainly should have given people pause and Mm. reason to ask more questions and dig a little deeper. Why do you think people don't tend to ask questions in situations like that? Do you think it's purely just because it's an uncomfortable conversation? Um, Or do you think it's a lack of understanding and resources relating to how to identify these red flags? I think it's probably a little of both. Um, You know, I think we still generally, so many of us have that standpoint of, I just don't want to get involved. It's none of my business. And so it's easier just to back away and not ask the questions because once we start asking them, then we start to get the answers. And now what do I do? You know, Mm -hmm. now I'm presented with these answers that now I have to take action. And, And so I think it can be a domino effect that if people don't ask, well, then they don't have to deal with it. But I think it is also the inability to recognize these red flags. That's one of the things that I'm working more on, both with my podcast, but also in my day-to-day work at a nonprofit um, is really educating people about potential red flags. And Mm -hmm. yes, one thing or two things, it may just be a coincidence, but when we start to see things adding up and people doing things that just don't always make sense, we need to ask more questions and we, we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to the people involved to dig deeper. And next, Emily Elizabeth Anderson talks about when she realized how bad IBLP really was and using her voice for the first time. How long did it take for you to go from, okay, something's wrong with Bill to something's wrong with Bill's teaching? And Mm -hmm. when did you first kind of voice that to anybody? Well, I had several pivotal moments that have occurred since 2012 when I first read the first Recovering Grace article. First of all, when I read that first article, I did bring the information to my mother and I'm like, this is how Bill treated me. Like Mm. when you weren't around, even sometimes when she was around, but when you weren't around, this is what he was doing. And um, she immediately, and this is like, I don't fault her for this one at all, but you know, she was immediately like, Oh, Emily, that, that can't be, he would never act inappropriate toward a young lady. He's just being grandfatherly. These people don't understand. There's just absolutely no way he would be sexually, you know, inappropriate with any girl. And so I, I kind of believed that as well for a time. Um, I went ahead very impulsively and wrote out some comments under that article and shared a little bit of my own experience with Bill. 
just from a very factual standpoint, because I still didn't believe it was sexual harassment myself. And um, I did receive a call from Bill just wow. a couple of days later. He had read my comments and I would say that's when all hell broke loose. Um, he berated me on the phone for at least an hour. Um, he said that I was a vicious, malicious liar and that I was telling a half truth and trying to come up with a story and putting labels on it to attempt to destroy the entire ministry and that the damage was getting worse by the hour within a matter of weeks, IBLP would be sunk. All of the staff at headquarters would lose their jobs. That was going to be my fault. So he like, you know, proposed this doomsday scenario based off of my comments. And he's like, you have got to retract these instantly. And I'm really proud of myself because on one hand, he, I did totally fall for the manipulation and I started crying profusely and begging for his mercy and forgiveness and saying, I'm so sorry. I can't, I, I never ever meant to cause any kind of harm. And, um, but on the other hand, I really stood up for myself in that I didn't want to delete my comments mm -hmm. right away. I mean, initially I said, yes, yes, yes. I'll delete them for sure. Um, but I wouldn't agree that I had lied or that I had even told a half truth. I didn't fall for that. I just made it be, or I, I believe myself that like, well, what I said was truthful. I mean, I didn't see anything false. My comments are hundred percent truthful. It just had a consequence that I wasn't intending. And I was so sorry for that consequence. Um, anyway, he, um, after berating me on the phone for quite a while, me apologizing, he completely did this 180 switch and started sweet talking me in the way he typically did and said how much he loved me and how everything was going to be okay. As long as I just removed my comments. And at first I'm like, fine. Yes, we'll do that. We'll do that. Um, and we reached out. We, my mother and I reached out to recovering grace, asked them to remove the comments. Thankfully, because you can't remove them yourself. An admin had to remove them. Thankfully, um, recovering grace team member asked to have a phone call with us mm -hmm. and he talked to us for a couple of hours and began to give some history of the darker side of iblp i would say his phone call didn't make that much of an impact because we didn't still believe that there really was a darker side to iblp right. but um he um, did convince us to hold off on deleting the comments. And instead we offered Bill to do a retract or not retraction, a, um, to alter the comments and include some details that he was upset that I left out. Not on purpose, but just because I wasn't writing a novel in the comment section, you know, right. <laughs> but he's like, you left out this, and you left out that. It's like, okay, we'll add those details back in to make you look better. Um, and long story short, he, harassed me over the phone for three long weeks, calling my house several times a day, leaving messages, insisting, demanding that I remove my comments. And I continue to say, like, I didn't lie. I didn't lie. Nothing's wrong with my comments. But eventually the phone harassment really wore down my nerves and I reached out to Recovering Grace and I just said, please, I think it's wrong that I remove my comments, but I cannot handle the phone harassment anymore. Please just remove them. Nice. And they respected my wishes. I know it was hard for them, but they did. 
And um, for several months, I really just tried to bury the whole situation. I um, tried to forget about it. And it was difficult because Bill reached out to me several other times asking for more formal written statements of retraction, saying that me renewing my comments wasn't enough. Um, Oddly enough, he actually reached out to me two other times, Mm -hmm. pretending that the whole situation hadn't happened at all. And he's like, oh, Emily, I thought of you the other day. We have a brand new ministry starting up here at headquarters, and I want you to run the head of it. Like, like. Did we not forget everything that just happened with between us in the last year? It was very right. strange. But anyway, um, in t- I, I did continue to read the Recovering Grace articles off and on. Um, and in 2014, a new article was released by a woman who detailed a story of Bill molesting her. Mm. And that was a very crucial moment for me. That was a moment I realized I can't explain this away by grandfatherly affection. Like this has, if this is true, this has to be a sexual predator. So that was a big turning point for me. Another big turning point was when I officially joined the lawsuit in 2015. Um, At that point, I understood the legal definition of Bill's actions but I still didn't think anything was wrong with that, with the fundamentalist teaching. And that didn't start until soon after I joined the lawsuit when I started professional counseling. Mm-hmm. And so it was really professional counseling in like 2016, 2017, et cetera, that I finally started to understand that this is not just about Bill and his personal interactions with me, like the entire movement is broken and dangerous. And it's been a journey ever since of learning, you know, just how corrupted the teaching is and learning what the truth is. And finally, the moment that Nippy and Sarah knew they had to leave Nexium and take it down. When you leave, you've got, I've always said you have two options. It's like a scary movie. You can get in the car, drive away and never go back to the campground, or you can be the person that spins around and goes and tries to pick up a bunch of people and take them out with you, you know, mm-hmm. um, or you put it in your book, I'm going to go, you can leave quietly or blow it up. And so mm-hmm. I guess my, my question to both of you is like, why did you decide to blow it up? Like it would have been really easy to to walk away and say like, that was an awful thing that, that happened. Let's leave it. For both of us, personal responsibility in what we had participated in. Number one, that that to mm-hmm. that has to be the number one thing on your. I've been a part of something bad. I need to fi- I need to fix the mistakes, right? Number two, you don't get to do that. Mm. You don't get to do that and get away with it, and then start touting yourself as this moral company of whatever, whatever punches that we have to throw. We're going to tell the world that you're not that thing, mm. right? And then once we started to do that collectively, we got dragged into a fight. Yeah, We didn't have a choice. Claire Bronfman got on a plane, probably a private plane, flew out to Vancouver a month later after the number one person in her company got branded with Keith Ranieri's, out and, well, Keith Ranieri's initials, um, didn't ask how she was. President of the company didn't ask how she was, didn't ask how she was doing. They were all about self-preservation. Mm. And the self-preservation, that meant they had to, 
take care of Sarah and myself and Mark and Bonnie, right? No. Because they knew that we had a lot of influence in the company. We we're in positions of leadership and they tried to get her arrested based on a lie. That's when I knew, okay, this is a fight. This could be the next three to five years of my life, but my gloves are off. And whatever I have to do that's within my power, I'm going to do it. I'm going to hit it as hard as I can. Mm. And that set us in motion. And really, they set the wheels in motion of their own demise. Because once the cards were on the table, and this is kind of really what we were betting on, um, they were going to be who we were saying they were far more than what they were accusing us of being. We were just people trying to get away from something horrible. Right. And that's exactly what played out. And it wasn't so much that we were right. We didn't know how right they were. It was a blowout. They didn't get a punch off in the court of law and didn't even attempt to defend themselves in law. And now they're trying to do it through the media and whatever. Nobody's listening because like they got the best um, police force agency, probably in human history in a civilization investigating them. getting resources and evidence. And then they went through a judge in one of the best courts and they had a jury of their peers. They had every due process that's known to man that's done at the highest level that we know in human history. And it was a blowout. Hmm. The jury had to deliberate four hours. They had seen enough that this guy should be taken out of commission and Claire Bronfman should be taken out so they can stop abusing and hurting people. Right. It happened quickly and swiftly. It wasn't even close. So sorry to get kind of whatever, but that's the magnitude of what happened. And yes, we were, you can say we were brave. We were mostly scared, Mm -hmm. right? We were mostly scared making these decisions. We had a lot of lucky decisions, a lot of people that were there to help us. Right. It happened very quickly. We didn't have to do much. They dragged us into the fight. And when, when the evidence came out on the table, they didn't even, it wasn't even close. It wasn't even like remotely close that they were going to walk and have any of the charges not stick. So look, you know, it sucked to go through. I wouldn't change it. Um, But we did the right thing. We exposed and saved a lot of people, even though they're not willing to admit it. Um, And it wasn't like we set out to do that necessarily. They dragged us into it. So I'm sure you can call me brave. I don't, really call it brave i felt like okay we have to go fight this fight it's right? the obvious step it's, to it's, do yeah this, we yeah. we have to do this and right. anyone in that situation the situation at sarah now would do the exact same thing sure. we had to go get a lawyer that was going to defend us we had to go to the new york times because they were threatening to arrest my wife hmm. three-year-old kid like what did you expect me to do yeah right and i know the truth is on my side i'm not running from anything i'm not hiding from anything so you know we made a lot of decisions and then you know, by July, a month after we left, we knew we were in a dogfight and we knew we had to exhaust every single resource we could to save ourselves. The reason we even did the documentary in the first place was because we thought we were going to have to have some self-preservation on tape. Sure. We didn't know we were doing a documentary. I didn't want my personal life to become other people's entertainment. I didn't really want all that. Yeah. You know, it's not like... <laughs> Sure. But in order to vindicate ourselves, in order to show the truth, and all of it was on tape and documented. Right. So everything that everyone saw in the documentary, pretty much the court saw and worse. Yeah. Um, they ultimately didn't need Sarah and I for this to convict them. So, yeah. you know, we got lucky. You know, the, the universe was looking out for us, however you want to put it. But for me, it was, you know, I was going to throw whatever punch I, I could throw to to protect my family, number one. 
and then set the record straight on who Keith Ranieri really is. Sure. So can I can I answer that as well though? Your sorry it was awesome. I just, I just went off. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was such a good answer. You reminded can, me of some things can, that I forgot about, and I think this is kind of the most exciting, if if it can be possible, exciting part of the book when we wake up, mm-hmm. and you know, then things move very quickly. Like my mom, as you know, as a therapist was like, I was, she was shocked at how quickly I woke up Mm. and some people say deprogrammed or whatever. Like I was just, I went from being like, this is, you know, the bee's knees, then be like, no, he's a sociopath and I am Mm. out. Um, Cause I could see it all so clearly very, like all these things that I had doubts about all made sense now. Like, oh, this is not who he says he is. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. he's a liar. But anyway, the, the question being, you know, leave quietly or blow it up. I woke up, I, I knew that I had to extract myself. Um, and I don't even necessarily, it wasn't necessarily an exact moment, but it was recognizing that DOS was, you know, worse than I thought that, you know, sex was involved. And um, I was really angry also because I don't know if I've talked about this anywhere, but yeah, you mentioned earlier MLM, mm-hmm. the MLM vibe. So in ESP, in Nexium, you weren't allowed to like recruit, use the, 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 the body of people for any other like thing, makeup, you know, mango juice, whatever essential oils, you couldn't use that body to recruit for your whatever. And so that was a really strict thing. Like basically you weren't allowed to be in an MLM if you were in Nexium. And there was some rules around like when you recruited someone, like if I brought in you and you were like, I was in charge of taking care of you. So somebody else like Nippy couldn't recruit you for something that he was doing within the company and get commissions on it. For example, like, it's like, I, not that I owned you, but like you were mine. (laughs) Like I was taking care of you. You were my, I could like, what, what's that? (laughs) That's a difference there. Sorry. No, but like, I I don't own you, but you're mine. You're you're mine. (laughs) You're mine to have. See what I I deal with here? Oh man. I don't know. This is really hard to explain, but I'm saying like Nippy would have get in trouble if he tried to recruit you. It's like a non-compete with everybody else. Yeah. It's a non-compete. Yeah. And so when DOS was created and we were told it was nothing to do (laughs) with Nexium. And then women within mm. Nexium were recruiting my people, my coaches, my students, and not only that, Your friends, my friends, some of my very, very, very best friends into this thing that has nothing to do with Nexium. And they were getting pictures of their most private areas. I'm not going to say like anything on here. I don't know, whatever. They're, they're getting nude photos. And not only that, but like dirty videos and women that I'd brought in to Nexium that I love, some of whom were like, you know, my best friends and my bridesmaids. Okay. These women were being recruited into this other thing that had nothing to do with Nexium. First of all, that in and of itself was a major no-no, but not only that. Okay. Now, now it is part of Nexium, and Keith is involved and those photos are going to Keith for his personal spank bank. I mean, no. you have to understand the, the rage inside me when I realized that it wasn't even an option to slip away quietly. No, I was like, you, I don't, I'm sorry. I'm really like, I get so riled up when I talk about it, but um, I don't know what they were thinking that I would be somehow okay with any of this, like on so many different levels. So blowing it up, 
it wasn't like we sat around and deliberated, you know, and, and trust me, my parents who watched me wake up, you know, my mom wanted me to get out of the cult for so long. And then me being like, and we're going to go on the New York times and we're going to did it. And they're like, are you sure? And like, what is this going to mean for your family? And you have a little boy. And I'm like, I, I don't, I mean, I, I just, it was everything in me was like, I, this is what we got to do. I was screaming from the rooftops. Anyone who would listen and oversharing, by the way, is something that happens when you get out of a cult mm-hmm. or like you tend to, I was, I would tell anyone who would listen, the thing I was a part of, it was a cult and, and I was manic and crazy to take this thing down. It was super cool for me to revisit these clips, and I really hope that you took some value from them. Remember, you can always go back and listen to those full interviews at any time on the Preacher Boys podcast. But for now, let's get into my brand new conversation with Ashley Easter, my good friend who runs Courage 365. But I'll let her explain all the amazing things that she does. I'm so excited to have my good friend and kind of boss, Ashley Easter, on the show today. You're not really my boss, I guess. Let's say colleague. My colleague, my colleague. (laughs) Um, But Ashley, as I mentioned in the intro to this episode, is the brains behind Courage 365. And I think I've been on the board for a year now. Yeah, just about a year. Pretty crazy. So um, for those that are listening who, you know, maybe aren't familiar with Courage 365, give them the elevator pitch version of what the mission of Courage 365 is actually is. Right. So Courage 365 started pretty organically. It was, I was sharing my story online and hundreds of people were telling me that they'd experienced very similar things. There were a lot of church abuse things, a lot of cover-ups, whole nine yards, talking to people on the phone, getting comments and emails. And they're like, I'm totally alone and isolated. And I'm like, you're not alone because I'm talking to all of you. So we initially started with a conference that was in person in 2016 that then evolved into um, uh, Courage 365, which is the nonprofit now. And our mission has never really changed. It's just kind of changed forms. So Mm -hmm. we're here to support abuse survivors. We're here to give them empowering information, education, healing tools, while a lot of organizations focus on the escape. And don't get me wrong, that is important. We focus a lot on like, well, what happens after? Like, what if you leave a toxic church or a toxic relationship or a cult? What happens once you're free, but Mm -hmm. like still dealing with all this trauma? So that's kind of our focus is the next steps and helping people just live a life of courage. And I believe choosing to get up every day and walk this healing journey is the courageous thing. So yeah, that's what we're all about. Yeah, absolutely. No. And it's one of the things when we first started talking, I guess over a year ago now, and you were first talking to me about potentially partnering up. And a lot of that conversation was me kind of feeling out is there things actually being done? Because I see nonprofits that, you know, spring up and I think always well-intentioned, but I think sometimes it's like, okay, we're a nonprofit. What do you do? I have a podcast and it's like, (laughs) okay. You know, and like, I think there is a, you know, yeah, there's, there's a delineation there. And like, you know, I, I've thought many times about, you know, do I turn what I'm doing into a nonprofit? But at the end of the day, it was like, I'm not able to really help beyond creating the show. And so it never made sense 
for me to do that or to try to act like it was something more than what it is, which is a podcast. And I really loved the fact that there was a focus on creating resources and creating events. And I'm, I hate that I never got to go to any in-person events and I hope someday that happens. Cause I think that's, yeah. that's really cool, but COVID kind of messed up our plans of that, mm-hmm. but there's definitely some opportunities, I think in the future for some in-person things to happen. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that would be awesome. But, but that's my point is that there's always that pivot happening. You mentioned COVID, like there's always, how can we best serve people and not just religious abuse survivors, but sexual assault right. or trauma survivors or fill in the blank whatever category you fall into, there's something for everybody. And 30 days of courage, I think marks another one of those pivots. And one of those things that I know for me is super helpful hearing different perspectives. Um, So diving into an event like this, I know as a podcaster, picking guests, people go, why'd you pick that person? I'm offended that you picked this person. I don't like this person. They're too culty. They're not culty enough to my cult, you know? Um, How do you go about finding speakers for an event like this? And obviously there's a pretty diverse panel of people attending every single one of these. So how do you go about kind of curating these events? Well, it's sort of a collaborative thing. So if anybody knows me, like I try to keep the woo out of my nonprofit stuff because not everybody's into like the intuition talk, but generally for like the topics part, I'm just like, what does our community need right now? Like, what are they really interested in? Where are there gaps in conversations where people are maybe like talking around something, but not actually talking about it? And then, you know, how can we create a conversation to address that? And then from there, it's like, okay, now we have to actually pick the speakers to fill in those spots. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that'll automatically come to mind, but then I like to collaborate with people like you, you know, you connected me with some incredible speakers and there's been other people that I've reached out to in the past. Some of my friends who have had connections, um, because the way I look at courage and really the 30 days of courage, anything that I do, it, it's not the Ashley Easter show. Like I'm kind of the face of it because you need a face for it. And don't get me wrong. I'm, I don't mind being in front of the camera. That's fun for me, (laughs) but like, there are so many people who have connections and will introduce me to people that I didn't know about. And, Mm -hmm. and you introduced me to some of those people when I've started to look at their work and see how they'd fit into these conversations. I'm just like, wow, my mind is really blown. And I know our audience is going to feel the same way when they hear from these speakers. And that's what is a little bit different about this year. So last year we had um, just mainly one-off speakers. And then we had one panel discussion this year. It's all panel discussions. I'm going to do like a kickoff that solo, just kind of let people know what to expect, kind of talk about the theme, but like all month long, we're having these incredible panel discussions. So these experts can like play off of each other on the different topics. And so we can just go deeper than if we were just listening to one person. Well, and even, I mean, even the podcast courage conversations, Mm -hmm. you know, I like the idea that it is a conversation and you can take things that are helpful and leave things that aren't. And, you know, it's a lot of stress. One, I think when you're putting together an uh, event or a show, like 
picking somebody, what are they going to say for 45 minutes? <laughs> what are they going to say right. for 30 minutes? You know, do yeah. I have to co-sign everything they say? Do I have to give a disclaimer? Yeah. That's kind of weird because they're at my event right. and right. it's, it's a tricky spot. Um, but one thing I love about doing this podcast or doing, um, you know, hosting in like panel type discussions is that you get to bounce things off of different people right. and get a variety of perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's really important. And I think especially for those of us who are, which I think most of my listeners are, when you come from a religious background, when you see somebody get up for a keynote at anything, whether it's a business <laughs> event or a music religious is playing drama, in your head I'm, in the I'm literally like, I don't care what you have to say. Like, why do you get to go up there and say that? So I think this is a really, really cool approach. And uh, for those that are listening I mean, these panels are super stacked. So let's kind of break down each one, maybe why we picked this topic for this year, why why it would be relevant. And then maybe just a couple um, panelists that you're excited yeah. about within those. I know that we could talk about each and every single one. Let's go into the first one, Unmasking Cults with TV Documentary Experts. Now, like as a marketer, it's great to front load your event with some good recognizable yes. faces. But beyond that, uh, why this specific focus? Well, you know, yes, from a marketing angle, great. But all of these people that we've chosen are real people. They're not just TV documentary mm-hmm. people. Like they're not just celebrities who don't aren't real people with stories. Like they have these deep stories. And when you listen to their stories on TV, I've done a little freelance work with TV production and you could talk for like 60 minutes and you might get 60 seconds of what you said on screen. And so because their stories are so impactful and powerful, I feel like in a panel discussion, we can go so much deeper and they can say the things that got cut. They can Mm -hmm. say the things that after the documentary has come out, people have expressed interest in and been like, I didn't understand that part or tell me more here or why did it happen that way? And so um, we've picked some some really cool people. Um, the first one is Emily Anderson, and she's from the Shiny Happy People documentary. And that one just blew up all over Amazon. And um, I walked away from that documentary being like, well done, but this is the tip of the iceberg. Like yeah. this is the tip of the iceberg. And so I can't wait to have her on the show to like go deeper because I know it's so much more than that. And then we have Sarah Edmondson from The Vow following that Keith Raniere cult. Like I followed it for years. I had a friend who had a friend in that cult. Mm. And it was one of those things where it was always sort of like on the radar in the back of my mind. And then this documentary comes out. But again, a lot of these things can be super sensationalized. Yeah. And so when you can actually have the real person on there and it's not about the sensational TV angles, it's about the real survivors sharing what they've learned and tips for real survivors. That's just so different. And then Matson Browning, I actually know him. He's, he's just such a cool guy. Um, he has helped with safety on the escaping polygamy TV Mm -hmm. show. And he also has gone undercover with skinhead groups um, and just helped like break those things up. And so he has such a fascinating angle around safety, getting people out and like Mm -hmm. infiltrating groups. And I just feel like people need to know 
more about that. So to have three of them all together to like talk to each other, like that's a dream come true. And (laughs) people get to send in their live questions with this. And so like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. People get to talk to these people from the shows they've watched and ask questions. Like, when does that ever happen? Right. <laughs> like yeah. never. So I'm going to get you back into today's episode in just a moment. But first, I want to thank the sponsor that is making today's episode possible. And that sponsor is Factor. Factor creates no prep, no mess meals. You can meet your wellness goals in time for summer. Thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart, protein plus and keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, no matter how many podcasts you're recording, going up and down the stairs, trying to take meetings, whatever you're doing, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. And I can say this from experience. They were kind enough to send me a couple of meals for this week, and I enjoyed one just shortly before reading this ad. And it is amazing. And with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert and stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. And these aren't meals that skimp on quality either. You've got things like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, and so much more. So if you want to try it, go head over to factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 and use code preacherboys 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PreacherBoys50 at factormeals.com slash PreacherBoys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Go check out Factor and now check out the rest of this episode. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Yeah, and and they're all three, like you hint at like they're all three doing the work still you know like sarah with her podcast is raising a lot of awareness and going super deep on a lot of these topics you know uh, matt is obviously on the the ground floor of a lot of these stories you know Mm -hmm. and emily's 
been on my show. She writes a lot of really awesome content relating right. to, yeah, to this. Know. So they're, uh, yeah, they're not just talking heads. Like, like you said, they're really exactly. real people that are, that are in the weeds, in the trenches on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm excited for that. And hand in hand with Colt's course of control, uh, we've got yeah. four people on this panel. Um, you know, I, I think it's important beyond like, I think talking through Colts is important, but I think also I really love the terminology of high control groups, course mm-hmm. of control, because I think when you hear Colt, you assume I'm not in that. So it's not relevant, right. but course of control gets into our workplaces, our marriages, right. our family dynamics. So, um, Give us a little context as to what people can expect from this panel specifically. Well, I think just really understanding that violence isn't always hitting somebody or locking Mm -hmm. somebody in a compound or um, using physical force, like coercive control, using manipulation, using gaslighting, using power and status to control people like that can be sometimes even more powerful than just hitting somebody. And I say just hitting somebody, I don't mean to downplay that because that's dangerous, but it's one of those things where, because it doesn't leave a mark, sometimes people don't understand. And they're like, well, you went along with it. So you must've wanted Mm. it because there's not a bruise. And so whether it's a cult um, and we're going to talk about coercive control from that perspective, from um, somebody who is a cult extraction expert, we're going to talk about it from a domestic violence point of view, from child sexual abuse and male survivor point of view, from someone who is a police officer, ex-police officer who, you know, was able to see that, you know, pretty much I'm sure almost every day at work, um, seeing people coming up against that and then things in their own life. And so I feel like the courts are just starting to recognize coercive mm-hmm. control as a real factor and something that could be like someone can be penalized for, whereas before it really was not. And so I think it's a buzzword that I'm hearing in the media more, but people don't really understand it. So let's get into that manipulation. Let's get into what it means to be coerced when even sometimes your own mind is like, did I choose this? But yeah you know, concepts of bounded choice, gaslighting, all the things. Yeah. 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 Love that. And um, the third panel is uh, takes us somewhere. Nobody wants to be uh, inside the mind <laughs> of a predator. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm personally most interested in this. I think just because mm-hmm. of the nature and um, the nature of what I do. Um, it's something that I'm constantly trying to understand and trying to get a grasp on. Um, right. But Talk to us a little bit about this specific panel and uh, the insights from the people on the panel um, as to how this kind of operates. Yeah. So I have tried to go in the mind of a predator in the (laughs) perspective of like, I have a lot of empathy for people. And a lot of times, even if I don't agree with them, I can like almost imagine like why they made that choice and almost feel the feelings because I'm empathetic. But for predators, I just don't get it. Um, so many times I'm just like, there was absolutely no reason to do this. Like, I know you've been hurt, but so have I. And I didn't end up doing X, yeah. Y, or Z. So it's one of those things where talking to these experts who deal with predators regularly, 
And in one case, Maureen, she's another one of our board members. She actually lived with a pedophile. She was married to one. Like this was in her family and she mm-hmm. didn't know it. And once she did, she she left, she got out of there. She did all the right things. But like, that's how tricky they can be. That's how right. twisted their minds can be that they can show you one part of themselves and be completely different. And then um, Dr. Deborah, like she she works in prisons and not everybody in prison is a predator. I'm not saying that, but right. she works with a lot of people who are and figuring out if they're safe to go back into society and be up for parole, those type of things. And the story she has told me, it is crazy. She's a forensic psychologist. And so like being able to link back, like why they did what they did in a way that not would never make sense to my mind because I, I care about people. <laughs> She's able to like dissect it. And it's, it's fascinating. It's creepy, but it's fascinating. Mm. And it also kind of gives me this like heads up of like, okay, how can I be more alert to protect myself from other people? And also how can I realize that even if I've met somebody who's really nice, if they're accused of doing something bad, I should take that seriously because they can show one side to one person and a different side to somebody else. And just being aware of those dynamics, like this is one I'm also really excited about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not familiar with Dr. Deborah at all. Um, and so I'll definitely be interested in that. I need to check out more of her her work because that that sounds right up my alley. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, for, I forget who it was. I always, when it comes to this topic, I always say it's probably Jimmy Hinton that said this, but most <laughs> most smart things that I think about come from him and our conversations <laughs> on this. But, um, but it was him or somebody else that brought up the idea that like we think of grooming as you're grooming one person. Right. And he was saying like, you're grooming and you're deceiving tons of different people. You've yes. got like, you're grooming your wife, you're grooming your victim, you're grooming the pastor, you're grooming the congregation, mm-hmm. you're grooming your coworkers. Like the amount of people that you have to trick to keep doing yeah. what you're doing is huge. And like, right. th- that's why I think it's so hard for us to understand one, because we're not sociopaths and we think with empathy and humanity and, and, but on the flip side too, like at a certain point, I have to imagine you're so deep down that hole of just lies that you, these guys probably don't even know what the truth is at a certain point. And from conversations, you reality. yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So needless to say, I'm really excited for that conversation. I think that'll be, that'll be really interesting. And, uh, Maureen is, is awesome. Like she's, I don't have favorites. I don't have, you know, BFFs, (laughs) but we're kind of like BFFs in the Courage 365 world. We've got some, we've got some uh, commonalities that bring us close together. So I'm I'm excited for that. A lot of inside jokes, a lot of, a lot of similar movie tastes. It's, it's a good, Mm. it'll be a good time. So, um, and we're wrapping up with the panel that will probably be most relevant to the people listening to this show, uh, religious trauma syndrome. Um, is, is that a thing? Do people have trauma from their religious experiences? Uh, why are we covering this? <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just pretty much in the last couple of years that it's actually been coined as like an actual yeah. psychology term, but I mean, yeah. As all your people listening and as everybody, well, most everybody who interacts with Courage 365, like it's just, it's one thing to be abused 
It's another thing to be abused by your family, but it's a completely other thing to be abused when you feel like it's being justified by God. Mm-hmm. Like that's just a different layer of trauma, fear, um, horror. It's just, it's just so much. And what I've noticed is a lot of times therapists don't, don't really understand those dynamics. And I have had to spend some therapy sessions. I have a great therapist now, but I've had to spend some therapy sessions, like teaching the therapist about religion and religious Mm -hmm. trauma before they can like help me. And at that point, I'm like, you should be paying me. (laughs) I'm an asset to your practice now that you know these things. And so we have a therapist on the panel who specializes in that. And then several other people who are just experts in, you know, seeing that trauma, talking about it, um, calling it out and, and supporting people. And so I, I just think it's, it's a topic we can't ever say enough about. And I think we're going to come at it from an empowering angle of like, you're not crazy. Like this is a real thing and it affects you differently than if you quote unquote, just experienced abuse. And when I say just, I'm not trying to downplay that, but it's just another layer that really, that really affects people. I mean, it's one of the things that's put me off of, um, you know, really pursuing therapy the way that I, you know, would like to like have an idealized version of what that looks like, but it is, it's, it's a, it's an intimidating thing to have to go. Are they going to even get this? Because it's such a niche, weird experience, you know, because it's not even, I've talked with some through the podcast and even off mic, just chatting through stuff. And it's like, they're like, yeah, we get like evangelical. I'm like, no, it's not evangelical. Like it's, it's heavy stuff, you know? And, um, and again, it's just a, I think this is important. And again, I think these conversations are really helpful. And and also like therapy itself is not accessible to everybody and having resources is not accessible. So I think mm-hmm. panels like this, just to hear you're not by yourself, right. and this goes for every panel, but for all of the panels at this, like just to hear, oh, I'm not alone. There's at yeah. least three or four people <laughs> that all right. understand this perspective. Right. And, you know, hopefully- hundreds of people watching and consuming the mm-hmm. content who can relate as well. So definitely, um, I'm, I'm really pumped about this. I got to ask you, what panel are you most excited for? Oh gosh. I, I think it has to be the TV documentary one hmm. just because I've heard these people's stories and I'm so fascinated yeah. to hear them all talk together, like individually fascinating, but yeah. together, like. I just, I, I can't wait. Um, and one other thing I wanted to mention, this is something yeah. that we've never done before. Um, you know, some of these topics are heavy and we get that. Mm-hmm. And we do always try to have an empowerment angle. So that people walk away feeling empowered, not just like down in the dumps. Right. But on the 30th of the month, cause it's 30 days of courage, we're actually going to do a trivia game show, which you've never done before. So I think it's going to actually be kind of fun. And we're going to have three contestants. So people tuning in, they don't have to worry that they're going to be put on the spot, but there will be an audience participation thing optional. And it'll be like, sort of, if you have listened to all the panels, you have Mm -hmm. a better chance of like guessing, you know how you sit like in 
watch, I don't know, maybe people are too young for this watching the show, but like watching Jeopardy and you're like, what is, and you know, you put in your answer or whatever, like you're going to get to do that, but you're going to have a better chance of knowing what it is if you listen to the panel. So I think it's just going to be fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm just really excited about that. And then we've got support groups and self-care challenges and prizes, and it's just going to be like pack full of great stuff. And I just, this is one of my favorite times of the year. Well, if you're listening to this episode, I want you to head over to 30 days of courage. Uh, It's courage, 365.org slash 30, the word 30, not the number. So courage, 365.org slash T H I R T Y and uh, join. It's completely free. So you're going to get your money's worth um, out of it, no matter (laughs) what. Um, But it is really going to be worth your time. I've been involved on the speaker side. I've been involved just as an attendee and it's been really exciting and fun, you know, at times and emotional at times and just overall super helpful. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'll be in there watching each of these. So, uh, you know, catch up with me in the comments and we'll, uh, we'll have a good time, but thank you so much, um, Ashley for coming on and for talking about it. I wanted to get you on to discuss it and, uh, looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Eric. Since we just got done talking about 30 days of courage, I thought I would share a talk that I gave at a past 30 Days of Courage event hosted by Courage 365. This was a talk called Pass the Mic that I did at, I think it was last year's Courage 365 event. And I know many people who are listening to this probably haven't had a chance to hear it yet. So I want to go ahead and share it right here. So here's my talk labeled Pass the Mic that I delivered at 30 Days of Courage not too long ago. Enjoy. I'll never forget when I was 17 years old, teary-eyed at summer camp, and through clenched teeth said the words, you are supposed to protect us. I was talking to my youth pastor of all people, someone that I should have trusted more than anybody, someone I looked up to, and until that moment, someone that I did trust more than anybody. I looked to him like a father figure. But before I talk about that pivotal pivotal moment of betrayal uh, at 17 years old, I want to take you back to my childhood. As Ashley said in my introduction, I was born and raised within the independent fundamental Baptist church. I'm sure there's many in this group that are familiar with them, but there's probably some that aren't, so I'll explain. The IFB is a hyper-conservative sect of Christianity, and they're by design not structured as part of a traditional denomination. They're not like the Southern Baptist Convention or uh, any other religious organized group that would be part of a council or a group of people. But it is disingenuous to say that all of these estimated 5,000 churches are truly independent. It's a little hard to explain if you're not in it, but perhaps the best way to attempt to explain it is that while most religious denominations have kind of a top-down triangular structure, like the Catholic Church, the IFB is made up of little circles. They're circles usually built around fundamentalist Bible colleges. So the college that the church pastor went to is usually the circle that you're in. There's some big colleges you may have heard of, like Bob Jones University, Hiles Anderson College, Pensacola Christian College, West Coast Baptist College, Golden State Baptist College, Maranatha Baptist College, and Crown College. My church was a little bit rare in the sense that there were multiple IFB colleges represented by the staff. My pastor was from Hiles Anderson, youth pastor from Pensacola, the rest of the staff were from West Coast. So we're a little bit of a Frankenstein's monster of IFB influences. 
And that was probably a benefit in some ways. There was some diversity in ministry methodologies and backgrounds and kept us from following one specific offshoot a little bit too closely. But we still had some of the weird oddities of the IFB. Uh, to give you a sense of some of the oddities, um, you know, not going to movies, not listening to music that had a beat, uh, not watching uh, R-rated movies, not dancing and not drinking. Uh, there was a couple things that made us what they would say a peculiar people. It's no exaggeration to say that I spent seven days a week on the church's six acre property. Uh, my parents were both on staff at the church and at the school. On Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights, I attended church services. From Monday through Friday, I attended a small private school in the same building operated by the church and the people that attended the church. And then on Saturday mornings, I'd load up in a 12-passenger van and go out in the community and surrounding cities to knock on doors and invite people to join us at church, which they called soul winning. So from birth to 18 years old, I went to church and school all on the same campus in the same L-shaped building on those same six acres. More accurately, that L-shaped building could have been described as an L-shaped bubble. I thought that I was the one who had the truth about everything. I felt safe. I felt like everybody else was wrong. We had all the answers and there was nothing that was going to break that bubble. And I know there's a lot of people in this group who are watching that came from some form of high control group or religious organization or abusive business where they felt the same way at some point, that nothing can happen to us here as long as we're in the safety of our bubble. We looked at the outside world as dangerous. That bubble burst around 16 or 17 when a sexual predator was relocated to our church as part of a cover-up. This man immediately became a Sunday school teacher at our church, immediately began leading music, leading worship at the church, singing specials every single Sunday. And it was just pure happenstance that I Googled his name. And I was the first one, at least I thought I was the first one, to find out the reason he was at our church was because he had sexually molested a 15-year-old girl at his dad's church in Chico, California. When I found out that information, my bubble just burst. I talk about this every time I'm on a podcast. I talk about this often on mine. All of my sense of community and safety and relationships and worldview and politics and religion was wrapped in this place that I had deemed perfect, that I had deemed safe. And all of a sudden, just like that, that bubble burst. How could this happen in my tight-knit, safe religious bubble that I'd grown up in my entire life? The people I trusted went there. The leaders were people that were like family to me. And my bubble burst a little bit more when I started telling my youth pastor, my pastor, my staff, my parents, people I'd known my entire life, what I had discovered. And nobody seemed to care. I was mocked by some. I was ignored by others. I was told, and I know so many people have heard this, be better, not bitter forgive, forget, all of the, the quick semantic stop signs people throw our way to get us to stop asking questions, to stop raising our voices. And in that moment, I was silenced. I felt smaller than small. I felt violated. Like I said, my bubble had burst. I felt scared. And I want to take a second. This is not something I even meant to say, but thinking about it in that sense too, I'm just someone who found out this happened in my bubble. 
So when I sit across from people and do interviews and I talk to people about abusive experience or, or things that have happened, I can't imagine how much more these feelings are amplified when it's happening directly to you. All the emotions that I felt intensified at summer camp, like I mentioned before, when my youth pastor, who up to that point, I was at his house at least once a week, I would go and run ministries with him. We were close, I would say like a father-son relationship. He revealed to me that he actually knew about the abuser's past before I had found out. I was absolutely stunned. And it was the shock and fear that came from that that pushed out the words, you are supposed to protect us. 17-year-old me, regardless of what the church said, was right. He was supposed to protect us. The other leaders in the church were supposed to protect us. The pastor was supposed to protect us. The church was supposed to protect us. But it didn't. And now, nearly 10 years later, that L-shaped, toxic bubble of a building is still a warm home to that sexual predator, while I'm made really uncomfortable if I ever come on the campus. He still stands on the stage every single Sunday and leads worship. The church, like many institutions, has failed to protect the right people and is devoting all of its energy, for whatever reason, to protect the wrong people. The scariest thing that I've realized in the last couple of years especially is that my small childhood church in Southern California is not an anomaly. Over the last couple of years, I've had run-ins with people from all over the country, even in all over the world, who've had the same experience across circles of the IFB, uh, location, sizes of church. I've encountered a lot of stories just like the one I've experienced. I've even gotten people outside the IFB talking to people like Sarah Edmondson from Nexium or talking with people uh, like uh, Megan was mentioned, who put together a database of abuse in Southern Baptist churches. Across churches, across religions, across denominations, across organizations, these stories seem to happen on repeat. Two you know, little differences here and there, but the same things seem to be happening over and over again. And in my case, and in the case that I'm sure many can resonate with, the church has failed to protect. In 2019, so all of this happened in uh, about 2011, 2012, um, in that range. And I left the movement, like many have. There's a long journey uh, coming out of there. And um, it's definitely true what they say in The Godfather. Like, just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. But a rocky exit later, uh, 2019, almost a decade later, um, I was driving home from work and I had stopped at a gas station or somewhere to pick up something. And I was scrolling through Twitter as my wife knows I love to do. I love to sit in the parking lot of grocery stores and stare at social media for an hour before I actually walk into the store. And I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw the story of an almost identical situation to what had happened uh, in Chico, California and what had happened with the cover up there. This story was from Baltimore, Maryland. and. My stomach turned as I read a disturbing story of abuse between a youth pastor, uh, or actually a senior pastor in this case, and a girl in the church. And my stomach tied into further knots when I saw that pastors in the IFB movement, including pastors connected to organizations that I knew, were fundraising for the abuser's legal fees, even though he had submitted a guilty plea. I drove home to our apartment at the time in California. I sat in my car. And I was furious. 
a feeling that I know every single person in this group has gone through. It's one of the first stages when you really come to see how wrong everything is at this point. I sat in my car, I pulled out my phone, and for the first time publicly, I started naming names. I named organizations. I called out abuse in the movement. It wasn't structured. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't well articulated. And if you're listening, you're probably saying, what's changed? This isn't structured, pretty, or articulated. But it was. It was a spur-of-the-moment rant. It was a change in how I had dealt with this for years. My response when I first found out was to go privately to people where I felt safe and to share and to talk about it and go to people I cared about and quietly let them know something or you know, behind closed doors with certain leaders, I would get more aggressive about it. This is the first time I really recognized an opportunity to say something to the general public. I had found my voice. Shortly after I decided that that one video in my car was not going to be enough. So I started what has become the Preacher Boys podcast. Uh, So I did this rant in end of November or December of 2019. And the first episode of the Preacher Boys podcast dropped in the beginning of 2020. And I remember when I was putting the show together, I told my wife, if there's a hundred people that this helps, and if I'm able to talk to two or three people who are willing to share their story, this is a success. I could not have imagined uh, how successful the show would become. The platform was for all the people who felt they've been silenced by the church, felt they've been ignored, feel like abuse has uh, been swept under the rug because it has over and over again. Uh, It was a specific platform for survivors of my specific little tiny denomination. And it was a place for myself to speak out the way that I wanted to as a 17-year-old, but couldn't. And when people ask me why, why did you start the show? And I get asked that on every podcast I appear on. Uh, Why did you start the show? Why did you start talking about this? Why focus on uh, this subject? What do you want to happen? My answer is always exactly the same. My goal with the Preacher Boys podcast is I want to pass the microphone. When uh, Ashley asked me to speak at this event and I had to think of what topic to talk about, it took me maybe five minutes to really decide this was what I wanted to talk about. I want to pass the mic. And for everybody who's listening to this, again, whether you're watching live or you're watching on a replay, you have the responsibility to pass the mic. For too long, the only people with voices in the church specifically have been pastors. They get a mic that sits on the pulpit, just like I have a mic sitting in front of me, and they get to share their version of stories. They get to share their philosophy and their thoughts and their positions and their truth. And I think it's time for advocates to step forward and grab a hold of that microphone and pass it. But who do we pass it to? I think the answer from my story, you probably already know. First and foremost, we need to pass the mic to survivors. Giving this speech is a little bit strange. (laughs) I told Ashley the first uh, The last time that I can remember giving an actual presentation was in India behind a pulpit preaching a sermon years ago. And it is strange getting to share my point of view and my thoughts because the majority of my time with the Preacher Boys podcast is me listening to survivors. If we cannot hear survivors, we cannot have any meaningful discussion about the abuse they survived. 
They have an intimate knowledge and firsthand experience of these issues, and we have to hear them. I can't imagine how frustrating it is to be a survivor of severe abuse by clergy or by any type of organization. And hearing people pontificate about what that experience might have been like or how they should feel, I know just as an advocate how frustrated I get hearing conversations like that. And the truth is there are too many pastors and too many leaders and too many you know, wannabe advocates who won't step back and hear what survivors actually have to say. I had a conversation with a pastor uh, probably about a year ago. And he was preparing to put together an event uh, to talk about abuse within the church. And I found out through another source that the event was going to be hosted only by male pastors. They weren't going to allow women on the platform to share their perspectives because they didn't believe theologically in having women in the pulpit. And the reality is you can't host an event about abuse in the church without welcoming women who've been abused within the church. You can't have any serious conversation about how to solve a problem without bringing in the people who have been affected and marginalized by the problem. And so with the Preacher Boys podcast, my goal from day one has been to take the microphone, slide it across the uh, the table, so to speak, to people who've experienced abuse and have been silenced in the church. Many times that is women in the church. Many times that is people who aren't born in the right families in the church. It's people who have been waiting for an opportunity to share. I had one guest come on my podcast and she talked about going through abuse. And she said, what could have opened me up to talk about it, what could have brought an end to it is if one person who walked into the room would have asked what's going on, not ask some direct awkward questions, but they would have just said, what's going on? Do you need help? What do you need? What's happening? It would have given her the freedom and the liberty to share about the abuse that she was experiencing. So we have to pass the mic to survivors. It doesn't have to be a real microphone. It doesn't have to be a podcast. Not everybody in this world is gifted in building a platform or in journalism or in fill in the blank, but it could be as simple as giving a family member the opportunity to talk, giving a friend a uh, an opportunity to share their story in an unfiltered and uncensored way. We have to hear what survivors have to say. But also, we need to pass the mic to real experts. Now, again, I'm leaning heavily on my religious background, and I know that my specific brand of fundamentalism isn't everybody's story. But regardless, we've all been in situations where people, again, try to share how people should feel, how they should deal with trauma, how they should handle different situations when they're not qualified to talk about it. Again, I'm passionate about this topic. I'm passionate about talking about religious abuse, clergy abuse. Uh, I'm passionate about seeing abuse end. I'm passionate about trauma recovery. But the reality is I'm not a trained trauma therapist. I'm not a legal expert. I'm not part of a special victims unit. And no matter how passionate I get, I do not get to be one of those things. I'm Eric Skorzynski. I'm a 26-year-old podcaster, and that's not me downplaying who I am. I'm not saying, oh, I could be one of them, but I'm just a podcaster. On the contrary, being a podcaster has been my superpower. I have the creative energy to develop a show, the marketing savvy to build an effective platform, 
And those are my gifts. If I was pretending to be something else, if I came on the mic every single week and pretended to be a therapist or pretended to be a legal expert or fill in the blank, I'm not helping anybody. I need to step into my gifts, grow my platform, and that looks different for each and every one of us, and use it to amplify the voices of other incredible people. The experts have their own different superpowers. And I can't stress this enough. If you're listening to this and you're a pastor or you work in a church or you uh, are part of some organization, defer to experts, especially when we're dealing with something that is complex and medical, like the effects of trauma, you need to bring in experts. People like my friend uh, and religious trauma therapist, Claire Horner uh, out of Atlanta. Uh, I've brought her on so many times to speak into topics that I'm not educated in speaking about. People like Claudia King, who's a former law enforcement officer and a former victim of abuse herself, who's now a victim's advocate up in Colorado. Uh, the people like a psychologist like Chuck DeGroat, who specializes in studying narcissism in the church. People like Boz Tavijan, who has represented hundreds, if not thousands of victims as a lawyer and founded an organization like Grace to end clergy abuse. I pass the microphone to them so we can affect real change. So the Preacher Boys podcast exists not only to rally survivors and advocates, but also to spark a fire of change within leading congregants, leaders, pastors, and others to affect change in their own churches and their own communities. So through interviews and through resources from other experts, from survivors, from people I've gotten to talk to, people who have knowledge far beyond what I do, I've been able to try to help strengthen security in the church and minister to people who are outside the church, people who have been hurt in a place where it should have been a place of refuge and safety. Passing the mic is powerful. Last month alone, the Preacher Boys podcast was downloaded 48,000 times. And that's just the audio stream. That's not counting video or social, anything like that. That means that 48,000 times people heard from a survivor for the first time. They heard from an expert talking about complex issues like trauma or misogyny within the church or racism or sexism or a variety of topics that people need to hear about, that people are begging for someone to talk about, but has been off limits within their environments for too long. That's literally hundreds of thousands of people who are getting the itch to tell their story for the first time. They're coming to a platform and instead of just getting the opportunity to tell a therapist, they're getting to talk to people at a massive scale, making their voice heard in a in a way that goes far beyond what their abuser's voice ever reached, even if they were the pastor of a massive church. No one could have expected, and when I say no one, I mean myself, could have expected what simply passing the microphone back in the beginning of 2020 would have become. And my goal with passing the mic and your goal with passing the mic and Ashley's goal with passing the mic and every single advocate, and we're all advocates. If you're watching this, you can be an advocate. The goal is to create an environment where abuse can't be ignored anymore, where people who are supposed to take care of us are forced to because there's nowhere left to hide. There's nowhere left to run, and they have to address it. There's a, there's a verse uh, in the Bible that really resonates with me, and it says, uh, for those who continue in sin, and it's talking about spiritual leaders. For those that continue in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all uh, so that they'll tremble in fear. And that is just a paraphrase because I don't have it up in front of me. And again, 
didn't even plan to share that verse, but I think about that a lot. If we all raise our voices enough, I know there's people in this group like Jimmy Hinton, who phenomenal pastors sharing their voice and, and raising awareness, people like Ashley. If enough of us come together and keep track of this abuse, call it out, lay out the names of people who are doing this abuse and stand strong for survivors, eventually the people who want to abuse. I know there's people here who are speaking about people who abuse in Hollywood, people that abuse in the Mormon church. Eventually, the goal should be that they're all trembling in fear, that they know the minute that they step out of line, the minute that they make a statement that hurts somebody, the minute that they take an action that crosses the line sexually or physically or is mentally or spiritually abusive, there's a community of people out there ready to call it out. And if they don't change, and if there isn't change sweeping throughout the church, and if history is any indication, organizations deciding to change and turn around is sometimes a rarity, then look around. I wish we were sitting in person in an auditorium, and I wish you could see the 800 people in this group, which is incredible, within my audience. I wish you could see the audience around uh, the Baptist abuser database, Baptist accountability database, the people that have picked up copies of important books and are now studying and learning on their own. I wish you could look around and see that even if the places that were supposed to be safe aren't, there are voices out here saying, you are welcomed. And as we step forward and pass the mic from one survivor to the next and one expert to the next, we're going to continue to see a new, growing, healthy, healthy, healthy community of people looking out for each other, caring for each other, healing together. And then once we find healing and once we get to a place where you know, we can we can start to make progress and start moving past this point of severe hurt, which takes so much time. We can begin looking for someone else we can help along the process. We can look for someone to pass the microphone to so their voice can be heard for the first time. Thank you guys so much. Think about ways that you can be an advocate and pass the mic to somebody this week. I know there's so many resources from Ashley and her team. Uh, you can definitely head over to the Preacher Voice podcast. I try to bring people on who can talk about that exact thing. But just giving someone the okay to share their story for the first time should be a goal that we have throughout our year, throughout our week, throughout our day-to-day. It's so easy to find time to pass the mic. Thank you guys so much. All right, that wraps up today's episode of the Preacher Voice podcast. Let me know in the comments of this video which section stood out to you, what your number one takeaway from the episode was. And if you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, I know you can't leave a comment. So be sure to head over to social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you spend the most time and connect with the Preacher Boys podcast. And let me know what you thought of today's show, what your biggest takeaways were, and whether or not you'll be attending 30 Days of Courage really, really soon. Go ahead and register for free at courage365.org slash 30, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. 
This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.